0: Hello, all you Reinventors out there. This is Leslie Jane Seymour, and I am also the founder of this podcast. And I love this story I'm gonna tell you about because what's wonderful is Christine and I met when I was a student at Columbia studying sustainability, and she came in and spoke so honestly about her experience She's been in the sustainability area and the corporate responsibility area for so long. She's incredibly intelligent and smart. And what happened when she had to rethink what this really meant to her and if she was seeing the progress that she was looking for in the company that she was working for. So. Christine was working for BP, the big oil company, and she was in the corporate, corporate responsibility area, and she wasn't seeing, she, she saw one side of the company, and then they had the Deepwater Horizon debacle, debacle um, where they lost a bunch of lives, and when she saw how they were handling that, that was not the same company she knew, so she wrote a fabulous book about it called The Evolution of a Corporate Idealist, When Girl Meets Oil. And then she also now is, she went on to work at Amazon and social responsibility. And then she decided this was not the life for her. She wasn't seeing her kids. She had twins. Her husband luckily was a stay-at-home dad, but he was getting all the love and he was getting to see everything that was going on every day, and she wasn't. So she had to rethink it all. Um, And so she's got a wonderful story about how she decided what she was going to do next, where they went, how they figured out, how they switched roles. And it's a wonderful story if you are trying to figure out what to do with a corporate sector that you've been in that maybe is not doing the things that you would like it to do or not doing it fast enough or not letting you have the life you would like to lead. So I'm really excited to bring to you Christine Bader and her wonderful story. And where she is now is really exciting because I just roped her in. She's going to come teach us at Covey Club um, because she's got a whole storytelling background about uh, reimagining work so that it enables the lives we want rather than determining the lives we're stuck with. And she certainly knows that. So let's welcome Christine. So Christine, I'm so excited that you were able to join me on this podcast. I was so impressed and so such great admiration of you when I met you when I was a Columbia student. Yes Leslie it's such a treat
1: and it's so funny because I was thinking about how we met and I was actually beating myself up about that class for a long time I just felt like I was a new instructor I wasn't super organized and it was such a treat to hear from you and hear that it really touched you so I'm so oh happy yeah I'm you're <laughs> totally
0: inspirational are you kidding isn't that funny? how everybody doesn't give themselves enough credit. It's so classic, totally. right? Totally. Like I thought totally. you were a rock star. I was like, oh my God, I got to get to know her better. How do I do that? <laughs> and um, that's just so interesting. So I'm so delighted and I want to talk about your uh, reinvention. So let's talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you got started and what was your original uh, career that you started out in sure so
1: I grew up in New York City uh, right in the heart of Manhattan um, my mother had emigrated from the Philippines my father's from Long Island and uh, they both worked pretty intense corporate jobs uh, when I was growing up and um, let's see how much how much detail do you want <laughs>
0: Well, what did you end up studying? Did you go to school in New York or where did you end up? It says Carthage College. No, no, that's, no that's
1: where I was teaching there. So, you know, I am. Um, Are you Yale? So, uh, that was for my that was for my MBA. So I grew up in New York City, uh, went to the wonderful Hunter College High School uh, and then went to Amherst College in Massachusetts. And I had a broad range of interests and so ended up uh, majoring in American Studies Um, wrote my thesis interviewing my mother and a few other Filipino-American businesswomen in New York who had uh, emigrated from the Philippines and um, established successful business careers and all the challenges that they faced. Uh, And then after college, I hopped around and did a bunch of different one-year programs. I was an AmeriCorps member with City Year. Uh, which puts young adults to work serving in underserved public schools across the US uh, with a couple of sites overseas. Um, I spent a year working at Phillips Academy Andover. I was their first teaching fellow in community service, so helping run their community service program. And then I came back home to New York City and I was working in city government as a New York City urban fellow, which places young people in city government agencies for a year. And As I was doing all that work, I realized that I was getting really good nonprofit and public sector experience, but I realized that the private sector companies seemed to be shaping a lot of the conditions that I was reacting to in these other jobs. So with City Year and Andover, I was serving in communities that needed support, either because companies had left and taken all the jobs with them, uh, or because companies had moved in and failed to hire anybody from the communities that they were moving into, or did things that were uh, even more insidious, you know, polluting or not paying their fair share of taxes. And in city government, uh, I realized how companies were being wooed or recruited for the jobs and the tax revenue, but how they really had to be regulated. So it, it just got me wondering, you know, who are these business people? <laughs> and, and why do they have so much power over our lives and societies? Uh, so that inspired me to go to business school and figure it out. So I went to Yale to get my MBA. And uh, but I, I didn't really know what a career in business would mean. Um, my, my mother um, worked in benefits, my father uh, had been an actuary, um, but I didn't really understand what impact their work had on um, you know on, on society and on communities. So uh, the fall of my first year of my MBA, uh, a man named John Brown came to speak, and at the time he was CEO of what was then British Petroleum, now BP. And not long before he came to speak, he had become the first head of a major energy company to acknowledge that climate change was real and urge action. This was in the fall of 1998. This was a big deal back wow. then. Wow! Yeah, that's amazing. For, I know, for the head of a major energy company. Unfortunately, it's still kind of a big deal today, but <laughs> you know, that's maybe a different conversation. Um, and so I was really intrigued by this man who seemed to be thinking about his role and the role of his company uh, in the world differently. Um, So I joined BP as a summer intern between um, my two years of business school and then joined the company full time uh, after graduation. Um, and, uh, so Leslie, just, um, you know, feel free to interrupt me anytime if you have any questions. Yeah, yeah, no, no, just t-
0: let's talk about what you did there. Cause I know that was one of the part of the history of your trajectory. Yes, totally. So
1: I, um, uh, so my, my summer internship I'd spent in London in, uh, executive, you know, headquarters, uh, of BP and, I agreed that I'd had a great time there. I was kind of pleasantly surprised by meeting all these people who were thinking about um, the impacts that the company was having on the environment and on society and on the communities where it operated. So I wanted to join the company full time, but I didn't know quite what or where. Uh, And then I decided that I would really like to go to Asia if I could and spend some more time there. And so BP had just taken over Arco, the American oil company, and was in the midst of analyzing all of the assets that it had acquired from Arco, um, many of which were in Indonesia. Uh, And so I went out there really as a commercial analyst, because in the fall of 2000, when I graduated from business school, um, I was interested in the role of business and society, but this whole field of corporate social responsibility didn't really exist. It, it sort of did like there was Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> right, know? right. Um, but it wasn't nearly as widespread and ubiquitous as it is today. So I joined as a commercial analyst and I went out there and I was uh, you know, running models, crunching financial and production data. Um, but there was one project one of the assets that BP had acquired from ARCO that was proving particularly interesting. It was a gas field that ARCO had discovered that BP was going to develop. And BP's done that all over the world. So technically it was sort of not a big deal. Uh, And economically it was an excellent project. But the more we looked at it, the more we realized that there were all of these social and human rights and community issues that could actually make or break the project. For example, we had to partner with the Indonesian military, uh, which is not known for its good community relations. There's a lot of hostility and uh, a history of uh, violence and a secessionist movement. Um, and you know, these were things that companies weren't really staffed up to deal with back then. So I was crunching my spreadsheets, but there were all these memos flying around, this was, you know, back in the time when there were memos about all of these, what we euphemistically referred to in the industry as non-technical or above ground issues. So I put my hand up and I said, can I work on some of this stuff? And they said, yeah, sure, please, (laughs) please work on some of this stuff. Um, And so that was really where I immersed myself in this field, this emerging field of corporate responsibility and business and human rights.
0: And were you happy with where they went to or were you dissatisfied? Because I think um, my impression was that you were disillusioned at the end um, of where they could actually go to.
1: Well, The the disillusionment actually came much later in the story. At the time, I was thrilled because I actually had pretty much a blank checkbook uh, and a lot of license to experiment. John Brown really wanted to see, could we refute the resource curse, which is the phenomenon that communities all over the world experience tragically, Uh, where there's a discovery of oil or gas or minerals and the community thinks that they're all gonna be rich and then they end up with nothing but environmental pollution and corruption and the money ends up going back to line somebody's pockets somewhere else. And John Brown really wanted to see, can we create a different model? Can we do a development like this where the benefits do actually accrue back to local residents. So, how can we engage the community to be our partners? How can we train them up so that they can be hired on our project or in the industries that would pop up around them, uh, where in a place where education levels were, you know, among the lowest in the country, never mind the region. So, I was really. Um, I was amazed and I really fell in love with BP because even the most, uh, you know, tough guy, commercial negotiators and drillers, everybody seemed to understand that getting the community on board and figuring out how this project could be a win-win, everybody just seemed to get it. And I had no idea that... That ethos could be what I thought, at least at the time, was widespread. So I had an amazing couple of years there, really getting to partner with local communities and with national universities and with international development NGOs. It was an amazing experience, Leslie. I was really impressed um, with what we're able to do there. And, And even now, 20 years later, that particular project has not seen the sort of uh, social strife and violence and dissent um, that really has plagued other uh, energy and mining projects really all over the world, including in Indonesia, including in that very province. So it was actually a really eye-opening and, and
0: positive experience. So you, were, you felt like you were successful in that, in that project?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's always hard to say, you know, I feel like saying that is like putting up the mission accomplished banner right, when right. to do, but right. we got to do some amazing things that I think uh, were really great models that other, you know, projects and other companies started to pick up on.
0: And so then what did you go on to do after that? Or is that because um, you were there for eight years, it says.
1: Yeah, I was with BP for eight years. So so I was uh, in Indonesia for a couple of years. And then I went on to do similar work on a BP joint venture in China. So I spent a year working there. Um, and then I went back to London to BP headquarters. I spent some time again as a commercial analyst to make sure that I still knew how to uh, use Excel. Um, and that people in the company still knew what to do with me, because Again, uh, CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility, wasn't really a career path yet, um, so I spent a couple of years there and then moved back into the sort of policy arena, which um, I was really realizing I was best suited for and really enjoyed. Um, I left BP for the opportunity to work on a United Nations project on business and human rights which was about developing standards uh, for companies and for governments for everybody to um, be clear on what businesses responsibilities are with respect to human rights and develop some guidance around that. Um, So I worked on that until uh, 2011. Um, And after that, um, by that point, you know, I I had this amazing um, honor to work on this United Nations project. But after a couple of years of that, I realized that um, the UN world wasn't really for me. It was very uh, kind of slow moving and political and semantic and I understood its importance. It was really important, the sort of standard setting that we were doing. But I really missed being at a company where I felt like the pace was faster. The impact was more direct and clearer. And I was really nostalgic for my time at BP um, up until uh, April 20th, 2010, when the Deepwater Horizon rig exploded in the Gulf of Mexico, um, killing 11 men and uh, wreaking environmental and economic havoc right? Around the Gulf and beyond. And the BP that emerged in the aftermath of that disaster was not the BP that I had fallen in love with during my nine years at that company, right? In all of the the press and the investigations and the hearings, um, you know, the BP that emerged there was one that was callous and negligent. And so it really forced me to replay my nine years at the company over and over in my mind and think, did I, you know, did I miss a memo? <laughs> like, what? You know, is everything that I thought I'd learned about business wrong? So, yeah, you know, and, and who was I anyway, because I was participating in this United Nations initiative as an expert on socially responsible business. So who was I anyway? Um, so to answer some of these questions for myself, I started interviewing or it, it really just started as chatting with my peers in other companies, you know, friends who worked at The Gap or Coca-Cola or Yahoo, where mm-hmm. people had gotten hurt on the company's watch. Right. Uh-huh. And yes. And so these were friends who, you know, people who I kind of chatted with at conferences, but I never really sat down and asked them you know, what do you, what do you think we're doing
0: here? Right? they all, Christine, were they all CSR people? Basically? They had various, they had various titles.
1: Some of them had human rights in their title. Some of them were sustainability. Some of them were um, ethics or community relations, but they were all generally had some role to play in, um, Uh, really trying to understand and improve the company's impacts and interactions with stakeholders. So chatting with them, I realized that there is this um, global invisible army of people Mm. just like me. These were not people doing public relations, I should say. This was not Mm -hmm. stuff that was done for the Cameras. This was, you know, deep in the belly of the beast, right? And um, so realizing that we faced all these common challenges and, you know, mixed messages from her senior management, and feeling like an outsider on the inside and mm-hmm. uh, like a sellout from the outside. And so I, I just really realized that there was a, a story to tell of this community. So that what inspired me to write my book, which came out in 2014. And it's my story of working with BP, and then weaving in the stories of all these other people who I called corporate idealists. So the book is called The Evolution of a Corporate Idealist, When Girl Meets Oil. Um, And it's our story, really, of people who are trying to change big business for the better.
0: And what is your conclusion? Because here we are in the middle of, we are seeing climate change. We are seeing the impacts of it. Sometimes some is really scary already. Yeah. I mean, are you cynical now and saying that yeah, they can talk out of the CSR side of their mouth while they're doing bad on the other side? (laughs) Is it just, or do you think it's just the two are incongruous or we don't understand yet how to put the two together? Yeah. What's your your overall thesis looking back? Because you are trying to do good. And what you're saying is a lot of these companies do want to do good and they are trying to. Yeah,
1: yeah, Yeah. it's a good question, Leslie. I mean, I think... um, you know, I've been thinking about it a lot recently because I'm getting ready to to do a second edition of the book. Oh, cool! And um, and I, you know, I think my thinking has changed. And and I, uh, what I need to do over the next you know period or so as I write it is actually go back to the people who I interviewed because mm, that's I how like I that. learn, right? Like Good I learn I learn through conversations with others, um, which was actually incredibly helpful in writing the book, you know, writing the first edition of the book for me to um, really learn about myself and, and see my beliefs reflected in this professional community of people. I mean, what I came to at the time when I wrote the book was, um, well, I, I, you know, there's a, there's a quote at the front of the, the, the two quotes that I have at the front of the book. Um, the first one is from John Brown. Uh, and it's that um, you know a good business. You know what? Let me actually find it so I don't I don't misquote him um, uh, or the book because this is this actually you know sort of because we have
0: it. found we have found that you know the companies that do write also can make money. It's not one is exclusive exactly. of the other. That's right. That is That's the right. that is the new actual facts and figures and reporting but it seems like the two have to catch up with each other. um,
1: Right. Well, and it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen by default.
0: (laughs) Right. No, no, no. Right.
1: That's the key. So, so the first quote that I have was from BP, uh, a good business should be both competitively successful and a force for good. Mm -hmm. And the second quote that I have is from the poet WH Auden, which is there is a great deal of difference in believing something still and believing it again. Mm. um, And I chose that quote because BP really broke my heart, Leslie. Right? I mean, I I, understand, you know, I'd fallen in love with this company. And then, um, you know, look at the havoc that it wreaked and the people that it it killed. Um, But then talking to all of these other people facing these similar challenges and really doing the work every day, what I came to believe was that I can see some of the challenges inherent in business. And I talk about a lot of these themes in my book that no one gets rewarded for what doesn't happen.
0: Right. And that um, that's the big problem overall with sustainability and all this stuff is that no one wants to invest ahead of time to make sure things don't happen.
1: Exactly. And a lot of the people who, you know, I interviewed one woman who um, you know, works on supply chain for a very large uh, fast food company. And she told me how one of their internal awards, which, you know, were a big deal at a big company, right? Uh, went to one of her colleagues who managed a huge safety disaster. And she was like, are you kidding me? I've prevented like 50 of those.
0: Right. Right. <laughs> but right, any, right. Any
1: reward for that, right? Right. So, um so I can see a lot of the challenges and themes that I think are inherent and embedded in capitalism, but I also really came to believe in incrementalism. That I talked to a lot of people who said, "Yeah, we still have a lot of problems today, but working conditions are better than they were 20 years ago." Right. When we first started doing this work. So I I came to embrace incrementalism and see that, you know, if we're going to move these super tanker companies, it's going to take a while. Right. And it's, you know, these little wins and one big step backward once in a while. So that's what I believed when I wrote the book then. Um, But now, Leslie, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's good enough anymore.
0: Yeah, I mean, it feels it more feel, urgent, doesn't it?
1: It sure does, and and on everything—on climate, on diversity, uh, on equity, on inequality—you know, on wellness, on mental health—everything just seems much more urgent to me. And so I'm not quite sure what to do with that yet, because mm-hmm. I still don't believe that big companies can change very quickly, and I don't believe that they're going out of business anytime soon. Right. As, as much as you know, in some circles, we talk about the urgency of change. So I, I'm not sure. We'll yeah. have to see what happens in the in the next edition. <laughs> right.
0: Talk a little bit about, so you were at Amazon, because Amazon, I think, could really impact the world because um, you were doing social responsibility there, right? Yes, that's right. I mean, I keep wanting to figure out how to get them to let us return all their boxes to the whole food stores. Well, you know,
1: Right, right. Well they, they've done they've done a lot on packaging. I I you know in and, and, um you know there are a lot of things that you can buy without an overbox. They've realized you sort of don't need that for a lot of things, and they've right. done more innovation on packaging than than others, but I think they um, you know, demonstrate and exaggerate in a lot of ways all of the challenges of CSR and sustainability because of their scale. And speed and ubiquity. Um, I mean, I think I think all of us, frankly, buy too much. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, anyway, I think I, they, they yeah. say that the one of the first things you can do to impact your footprint is to get rid of Amazon Prime.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, we, we, I, you know, I've downsized, you know, part of the reinvention was really stepping away from corporate life and, um, really living on a much smaller footprint in a place where there is a much lower cost of living than I've lived in the past. And I left Amazon in, uh, 2017, uh, and I don't know that we've bought anything from them. Since, that's not true. We bought a couple of things, but
0: here wow. you know, in my
1: town, there's, you know, there's a great consignment shop um, and we don't need much, Leslie. We've
0: you know, you got a lot.
1: We've got a lot.
0: So talk about your reinvention because we're, we're pulling into the end here. Yeah. Our last five minutes. So talk about what you're doing now and why you're doing it and um, where we find you. Yeah so i had a great
1: run at amazon it was a real um honor to be in deep in the belly of the beast of that historic company at you know a historic time uh really and really um see that Uh, and i got to build an amazing team um, and work with some brilliant people Um, and then i got home one day to my husband who had quit his job so that i could take the job with amazon He was home with our twins who were then four, I think. And I got home from work one day and they were sitting on the couch reading as they often were when I got home from work. Uh, But they were reading to him. And I thought, when did you learn how to read?
0: (laughs) Yeah, amazing, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, And I thought, you know, this is a great job, uh, but it's not worth all that. Um, So I quit. And that was incredibly hard to give up this professional identity that I'd been uh, working on for 20 years. Uh, But I saw my parents work really hard and, um, you know, I had my kids when I was 40, I'm not having any more. And I was never going to have a four-year-old again or a five-year-old or an eight-year-old or whatever. So, um, so I quit and uh, my husband and I decided to uh, have a crazy family adventure so we packed up the family went to Bali for a year enrolled the kids at the green school Uh, and now we are living in McMinnville Oregon in the heart of Oregon wine country my husband was also a corporate person and reinvented himself as a photographer so he's been um, the first artist in residence at uh, Rex Hill uh, which is part of A to Z Wineworks Um, which is the largest wine producer in Oregon. So we are here. I've launched a storytelling project uh, with a fellow sustainability friend and writer and mother of twins um, named Eva Dinal, and it's thelifeiwant.co. And we really want to examine how do we fix work so that it enables the lives we want rather than Sticking us with the lives we're stuck with because Leslie, I really had everything in that job. I had a supportive spouse, I had, um, you know, a purpose greater than myself. I had a great team, and work still wasn't working for me. And I am definitely on the privileged end of the spectrum. And we see how broken work is now. The pandemic has just been like a big highlighter. On that. Um, so we really want to collect stories of uh, people who are reimagining their relationship with work, employers who are really trying to empower people, um, how communities can better support us, uh, and what are the systems that we need to fix? Um, so I am mostly a pandemic parent now, but uh, also still a writer and coach and facilitator and whatever else. Um, is needed. I'm chairing our city's new uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion advisory committee. That's work that's really important to me. Um, So who knows, Leslie, but um,
0: (laughs) here I am. (laughs) But Talk a little bit about what you think. I really think, and am I wrong, that the pandemic has given us a pause and a moment to really ask ourselves, what does work need to be? And to maybe reimagine it if people are gutsy enough to do that and say, do I need do I need everybody in my team in a seat every single day commuting an hour and a half for I mean, do I really need all that? Do I need to pay for an office building? Do I need I mean, do you think? We're going to have the guts to reinvent? Or do you think that there's going to be enough pressure from the millennials who say, look, I don't want that old system like you? I want to, I want to, men, men and women, I want to integrate my family. I want to integrate my life. I want to, I don't want to just give my whole life over to work, but yet I do want to be successful and have an impact.
1: Right, right. Well, I think we're already seeing a bunch of companies snap back to the norm. Right. All these banks that are like, sorry, got to be back in the office now, which is just so disappointing, Leslie. It's so disappointing because you're right. I think a lot of people have realized, like, wait a second, <laughs> all the time that I waste, you oh, know, commu- commuting. Hours
0: commuting and right, getting dressed and putting on I makeup know, when you right. don't even need to see anybody that day. Exactly. Like, and like the dry oh, clear. Like, what? Yes. Right. Yes. So all of
1: these things. So so you're right that I think a lot of individuals have realized that. But that's why Eva and I in our project are seeing this as a system, because our individual decisions can only take us so far if we can't find an employer that can accommodate them. And if we're socially isolated because. You know, we haven't had time to invest in our communities. And if our system is broken and, you know, without universal health care, we have to work,
0: mm, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah.
1: so we've got to fix the pieces of the system. So I, I really hope we have the courage, Um, but it can't just be about us individually, right, making these choices. There also has to
0: be collective action. So how do you get and who are the people that sit down? Because, I mean, I can't believe there's not a financial incentive to look at it differently. I, I just can't believe the financials are not there that say, maybe we only need two floors in the building instead of the whole building. I, right, right. You know, I mean, yeah. from a financial point of view, no, isn't I think there that's incentive right. to rethink? I mean, I know that's, I mean, when you think about business, corporate corporations, Obviously, they're the financial beast, right? But right. If, if everybody wants to look at it through that lens, isn't, isn't yeah, there you discussion? you think. so? You I don't think. know what's I don't know what's going on at the company. Uh-huh. You
1: are saying everybody back mm-hmm. in the office. I guess part of that is client-driven work, right? But then, I mean, there's there's always a tension, I think, for companies of leading the client, right versus uh, you know, assuming what the client wants. Right. So I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, clearly employers need to be thinking creatively. And if it's all men who have had stay at home spouses their whole lives, you know, right. But, but also Leslie, we still have to look at the system in tandem too. Right. Right. Like if people can't get healthcare, care. Right. If they don't have a job, right, then then the employers have all the power.
0: Right. 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 So that's why, again,
1: it's a you know, it's systems all comes back to the systems thinking.
0: So do you think that I mean, what is your end goal with your storytelling? Is it to I mean, are you going to consult with companies to get them to change their ways or is it more just enlightening them or how are you bringing it to a larger level there?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Eva and I launched this project uh, in May 2019, and it you know it turns out we were just a few months ahead of our time because <laughs> because obviously um, you know with the pandemic now everybody is thinking about the meaning and the future of work, which is great because it is desperately needed. Uh, and Eva and I were both home, uh, you know, remote schooling our young twins. Um, so to be honest, Leslie, we haven't figured it out yet, but we are. Um, right now, just primarily collecting stories in all of those different arenas of individuals and employers. So, if your listeners and your community have stories, um, just you know, hang out with us at thelifeiwant.co, and we've been having these community calls too, um, which has been really fun. And I've been um, having some of these conversations, you know, with, in with university groups. Uh, as people are early thinking about their career. So I I don't really know yet, Leslie. We're um, just interested in uh, collecting stories and um, building community. And that's where we are for now. And we'll see where it goes.
0: Awesome. I see a book and I see see you (laughs) going around to various corporations and I see a white paper (laughs) and um, just my opinion. (laughs) Got it. Because I really think it's, I mean, I think you're on, right on the ledge of what everybody's got to grapple with here and i just don't see everybody's I, i'm sure that there's groups of people who will go back to the old thing but they're not mm. going to be very happy you're not going to mm. have a happy workforce right so what would your uh, your sort of pointers be for you know people who are in in situations like yours where you were getting disillusioned with the mission of what you thought you were doing um what were your if there's one or two pointers that yeah. you would suggest for people who are listening, how to get through that? Because that's really tough. I have to say, I was lucky I was not in that kind of um, business where, you know, the fashion in magazines, I wasn't disillusioned yeah. in any way. It was, you know, it was pretty obvious what we did. <laughs> and um, we did good in many ways. And we also probably created problems too, but right. <laughs> I wasn't disillusioned yeah. and not on the scale you were in, you know, we weren't hurting anybody big time. So.
1: Right. And I, and I also, I mean, the the disillusionment, I don't know if that's Actually, the right word because I still okay. I really believed in the work that I was doing. It was just really hard and up against some really big forces. Um, so I think it's hard, but I feel I still think it is necessary and real and impactful. It's just is it is it big enough? You know, is it big enough, fast enough? But in terms of tips, I, I realized that there were really three steps to my transition in leaving. Amazon, and leaving corporate life that are important. So uh, let me offer those. And the the first one is permission. So the three are permission, closure, and rest. Um, the first one is permission, realizing that, you know, as I was realizing that the job wasn't working with my life, it was still, again, a great job. I wasn't disillusioned there, but the, but it wasn't working for my life. And all the role models that I had, Leslie, my whole life, my parents worked, you know, my manager, her manager were all working moms, all of my business school classmates were working moms. And, and so, you know, part of my inner voice was like, well, suck it up, right? Like everybody is in this position. Why are you special? But, and nobody was going to give me permission to quit, but me. Um, And that would, you know, having to realize that that would take a couple of things, like let's run the numbers and see if we can afford for me to quit. Let's think about what else I might do, how I might, you know, still have an identity. Um, So that's a big issue. The identity thing we deal with a lot
0: in Covey Club. It's a big issue.
1: Huge issue. So whatever it takes to give yourself permission to make the transition, I think that's the first step. The second is closure. You know, I think um, a lot of us remember that story of the JetBlue flight attendant, Stephen Slater, who, you know, got in a fight with a parachute, oh, and yes, it Right. And he was sort of a cult hero for, you know, five minutes because, you know, we all kind of, you know, dream of, of going down in a blaze of glory, but he even, even he admitted later that that was not the way to go. <laughs> right? You You can't really move on to the next thing unless you finish out the chapter with grace and closure. So I had about a month at Amazon when, um, you know, I told my team that I was leaving and I got to say my goodbyes, wrap up the work, have one-on-ones with the, you know, whatever, 30 people on my team, um, write people handwritten notes so that by the time I walked out the door, there wasn't anything left hanging. I really had closure and that enabled me to look forward, right? And not just you know, not rebound into the next, you know, next situation that wasn't going to work. And I think of those, you know, B horror movies where people are running away from something, looking back at it and then run smack into you know whatever the next awful thing is. Right. So, um, closure is really important. And then the, the next stage is rest. Um, after I, I quit, I wrote an essay for the New York times, the year I learned to quit. And, uh, It was really all about rest because, you know, people like me who have had these sort of, um, uh, you know, good business careers, we have gotten to where we've gotten to because of our excellent planning. Um, but you can't really plan your way into the next thing. Um, if you don't really know what it is and if you don't give yourself some quiet space and some time and some reflection um, and and really just shut down for a bit. So that's part of why we decided to go to Bali to really just get away from stuff because I was getting offers for consulting work and it was the sort of thing where, you know, yeah, I could do that. And then it was like, wait, but do I really want to? Do I really, really want to? That this moment in time is about my trying to gain greater precision and clarity of how I want to use the um, the skills and my energy and the precious minutes of my day. And I can only do that if I go quiet for a while. And I uh, completely acknowledge that this um, takes enormous privilege to be able to turn down work and not do anything for a little while. Um, and so what I do with that privilege is I again, put even more pressure on myself to be precise so that I am not wasting my time and my energy. So those are the three steps that I would offer Leslie. It would be those are great permission, closure and rest.
0: Yeah, the rest thing is really important. I hear that from a lot of people who, you know, because they haven't planned and they don't have a second, um, you know, any kind of money put away or whatever, and they grab the next thing and that doesn't work and they grab the next, they're just grabbing. Right. And um, if you can, that's why I always say to everybody, you need to have a reinvention plan in your back pocket. Even if you love what you do, even if they love you, even if the company is doing great, like it's very hard to understand but you never know what's going to happen around the corner and yep. it may have nothing to do with you and you right. know the company may be you may and i i heard this so many times oh i love i've been at this bank for 22 years they love me i don't need a reinvention plan and then some company gobbles them up and they move <laughs> the bank to turkey you know right. and it's right and it's like, oh, well, I don't want to go to Turkey because my friends and my family is here. So now what do I do? I mean, it's not a lot. It's not to do with you sometimes. Totally. And but you need to plan and have the option. But that's wonderful. Christine, thank you so much. And um, I hope everybody will go see the storyteller. And it's at the life I want Co. Yes, that's right, Leslie. Thank you. Awesome. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Christine, for spending time with us. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you,
1: Leslie. Thank you.
0: I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Christine. I find her so inspirational. I hope you do. And if you do, I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast. I hope you will also pass the podcast along to any friends you know who need help with their reinvention. And if you are trying to reinvent deeper and want more information, come on over to CoveyClub.com and look at all our reinvention stories. We have a mess of them. There are so many and so many women reinventing. It doesn't matter what age you are, you can do it. And come over and snag my 31 badass tips and tricks for launching your reinvention without fear. That's my little download as to get you going. It has links to all kinds of pieces that we have done and pieces that I know about that will get you started. The hardest part about a reinvention is just getting started and actually admitting to yourself that you have to reinvent And what I want to do is let you know it's one foot after the other. I've had to reinvent over 150 women we have interviewed on this podcast have had to reinvent and it all starts with one step and your step can be downloading that list and reading and get you, get you going. So anyway, it was wonderful to spend the time with you and hope you will join us next time.